0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the green room here at Disrupt TV. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun today, but hey, Bitcoin at 24K, it's coming back. NASDAQ's coming back. Uh, Maybe we've got some sign of the uh, recovery, so we'll see what happens in this full employment recession. But hey, we've got some wonderful guests this this week, and uh, we're going to introduce them in reverse order. So, hey, Taraj, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today?
1: Hey, I'm uh, calling in from Los Altos
0: Hills, and we're talking about my new book, Exit Path. Who really teaching people what the exit is on a startup site. We're going to learn more about that. Saul, what about you? Where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today?
2: I'm at home in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, and we're going to talk about how to make transformation safer and easier to manage, and a very specific example, uh, Luna you to end the maternal health crisis in America.
0: Wow. We're going to get to see some of your pilots and hear about what you're doing. That's amazing. Jeff, what are we talking about today? Where, where are you calling in from?
3: I'm calling in from my home office in Colorado, and today we're going to talk about something which is near and dear to you, Ray, the great refactoring, and um, we're going to talk about that in the context of how to help people and organizations navigate this crazy world of ours.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, hey, back to you, Elle, and uh, we can kick it off.
3: All
2: right. Three, two, one.
4: Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest uh, your, uh, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television, uh, business, and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Apple Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. And in my opinion, he's one of the top futures to follow on Twitter at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV.
0: Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. Vala is not only my co-founder and co-host. He's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce, and he's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. If you don't follow him, definitely follow him. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses such as those from this show on ZDNet. So, But it's not about me. It's not about him. It's not about our... Uh, about the show. It's about our amazing guests. And who do you have to kick it off today, Vala?
4: Right. it's about the smartest CEOs in the world. Uh, and it's our privilege to have Jeff Tarr, who's the chief executive officer of Skillsoft, who brings a successful track record of building tech-enabled service companies into a trusted industry leaders. Over the last two decades, Jeff has transformed three publicly traded tech-enabled information companies into industry leaders. Jeff currently serves on the board of Echostar and DSST Public Schools, one of the leading open enrollment schools in the United States. Mm -hmm. He's also a member of the Stanford University Graduate School of Business Advisory Council and was previously chairman of the school's management board. Jeff served on the board of the corporate executive company CEB until the sale of the company to Gartner. He also serves as co-chair of the World Economic Forum Council on the Future of Space Technologies. That's pretty awesome. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JTARR1. Welcome Jeff to Disrupt TV.
3: Great to be here. Thanks, Paula. Thanks, Ray.
4: Great
0: to have you. Hey, we're really excited to have you. The one and only Jeff Tarr, you have a man of many talents. So I want to talk to you about one of the topics that I love talking about, which is the great refactoring. And as you know, you know the world has changed. The markets have changed. you know Our work-life balance has changed. All these different things are happening right now. And you're sitting in the middle of one of the most important areas of that change. Let's start there and talk about how you're seeing this great refactoring play a role.
3: Well, first of all, uh, this has been an extraordinary time. Uh, If we think about what organizations and people, most importantly, have been through over the last few years, COVID, the social justice movement, the great resignation, the emergence of massive skills gaps, a a mental health crisis that's quite tragic and affecting an extraordinary number of people, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, inflation like we haven't seen in 40 years, uh, and now potentially a, a recession. And, and that puts a lot of stress on organizations and the people that make those organizations work and, and are part of that and, and their families. And, and so my passion through all of this has been taking the resources of the company I lead, Skillsoft, and using those resources to deliver transformational learning experiences that equip people to better navigate this environment and help their company succeed.
4: Tell us a little bit about Skillsoft. How big is it? How many folks do you serve and what has been the biggest change to the company in terms of products and services and experiences uh, from March of 2020, when the, at least the US shutdown became decent, decentralized, digital only for many, many months to today, you know, almost three years later.
3: Well, Skillsoft is the leader in enterprise learning and helping organizations and people grow together through transformational learning experiences. Uh, We're the largest at what we do. We've been doing it for 25 years. Well, we brought the company public a little over a year ago and have since combined several other companies uh, to Extend our lead. So, we brought together Skillsoft, another business called Global Knowledge. We brought, uh, we added to the mix a large um, enterprise coaching business and Code Academy, which has taught more people to learn to code than any other mm-hmm. company on the planet. Uh, as we've brought these businesses together, what we found is we have the ingredients to create and deliver a new way to learn online. Mm-hmm. So, People think about perhaps watching video in the early days of online learning. People, companies literally took videos of 45 minute lectures and put those online. And turns out, that's not the way people learn online. They, they learn in a different way. Uh, They have to think about the fact that most people actually work (laughs) on mobile devices. We're on, we're on laptops or computers, but, but uh, the vast majority of working people in the world don't have access to that. This is what they use. Right. And so we have 140,000 micro videos. We have hands-on simulations and learning. We have coaching and mentoring. We have instructor-led training. We blend all of that together to create these immersive learning experiences. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, yeah, and no, Jeff,
4: as, so- as someone who's had three incredible successful companies, it tells me that you are someone that appreciates and practices lifelong learning. Can you tell us the importance of lifelong learning and, and how it's really the only way for you to stay relevant in this hyper-connected knowledge-sharing economy?
3: Well, well, learn or die, right? I mean, it's just yeah. uh, the yeah. world yeah. is changing so fast. Technology is changing so fast. Skills are being obsoleted at a, an unprecedented rate. You know, according to the world economic forum a billion people are going to need to be reskilled by 2030 wow that's you know and that's not, that's not just learning a little bit that's like completely reskilling yeah. in order to earn a living in order to make the economy work
0: you know, Jeff, you talk a lot about this, right? You talk about how to take that skills gap companies are seeing into a talent revolution. If you can delve a little bit deeper, into that I think that'd be great. I mean, given where we are today, I mean, what, there's something like 11 million jobs, openings that are available and 6 million people looking yeah. for work. That's like yeah. a mismatch, you know?
3: Huge mismatch. In fact, if companies focus on just recruiting talent from the outside, it's it's not working anymore. It, it just isn't working to just say, I'm going to go hire those skills. It's necessary to actually create the skills inside. And it's vastly less expensive. Uh, it also contributes to the people inside the company in ways that they never forget and creates tremendous loyalty. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if you take someone and give them skills they didn't have, they're, they're, they're more likely to be employees for life because they know you're invested in them. And and what we're seeing now is, is a tremendous opportunity because if you go back just a few years, learning inside of the enterprise was primarily classroom-based. It was expensive. It required travel. It required infrastructure. And then COVID happened. And the whole approach to learning inside of organizations changed overnight, had to from a classroom-first approach to a digital-first approach. That's opened up tremendous opportunity. More people inside the organization can have access to learning experiences. It can be delivered less expensively, and there's more data behind it. So when we go into a company, we, we start with benchmarking, where is the talent today? What, where are the skills gaps? You know, what are the competencies? How many people are competent in programming in Python? How many people know how to operate in a digital world or manage a remote workforce? And with that data, we can then deliver learning experiences that are customized for the company, their strategy, where they want to go and where they need to take their talent.
4: Jeff, I have the privilege of... uh collaborating with technology leaders on a daily basis, certainly weekly basis. Uh, CIOs, chief digital, chief information, chief technology, chief operations, more and more of the operation folks are really involved in technology decisions and technology roadmap, which is great. Um, in fact, I don't think any line of business, even CHROs are really uh, focusing on technology to, to help them you know, uh, shape their culture. Number one priority, I would say, across all these folks is skills gap. Uh, challenge of managing a hybrid work environment. We still are trying to figure that out. But skills gap um, and, 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 and retention. Uh, so what are technology leaders telling you uh, and, and your leaders? Uh, what are their expectations? What do they want from Skillsoft in terms of you know, demonstrating to the business you know, uh, this, this imp- importance of investing in, in, in stakeholders, starting with their
3: employees? You know, it depends on who you're talking to in the organization and its company and, 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 and the function that you're talking to. So I was recently talking to a, a Fortune 50 CIO <laughs> who said, Jeff, my two biggest challenges are onboarding new programmers mm-hmm. and helping my people leaders learn how to manage more effectively in a remote, remote environment. Okay, those are two, lots of companies have those issues. Those happen to be the two most important issues for this particular leader. And a couple of elements that those both have in common. First, they both require a blend of technical skills and soft skills. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, the solution to it is it's complicated. It's not just, Hey, go watch this, these videos. It's a blend of assessments and videos and coaching individualized. It turns out people are pretty lonely in this remote world. Hmm. So give them access to a coach or mentor, which we can do at a disruptive price point today and deliver that. And not only do you help them learn faster, help them be more effective, but you also address the loneliness and isolation that comes with remote learning. So we put that into the mix and we bring cohorts together to deliver instructor led training on more complicated advanced topics once they've gotten through the basics, because it turns out that there's still some things that to learn, it's better to be with someone Hmm. and with a cohort where you can ask questions, and get them answered. So we put these solutions together. We deliver them on a platform called Percipio. And we address those skills gaps. We drive up retention. We deliver ROI. Um, And it's a lot of fun. It's super rewarding because I feel like, yes, our customer is the company, but we're also changing lives.
4: Is that what what pulled you from space innovation to education? Was you know, it, yeah,
3: yes, there's a theme, which I'm like, for me at this stage in my career, and I've run six companies, like I, I do this now for just the, the sheer joy of it, right? And making <laughs> a contribution. And and I'm attracted to companies that when they get better, the world's a better place.
4: Wow.
3: And, and And that's not just because it inspires me, uh, cause I, I, am a capitalist at heart and, uh, too. And, and what I find is that people don't work for a paycheck anymore. Yeah. Yeah. They need yeah. a paycheck. But in this world, people need to know that what they're doing matters and makes a difference. And so when a company has a big purpose and the purpose is the most important thing inside the enterprise, You attract a higher caliber of talent. Those people work harder. They deliver more value to customers. And in so doing, they create more value for share owners. And that's a virtuous cycle that I think is the new virtuous cycle that really is going to power our economy going forward.
4: I love that. Values create value. I love that.
3: I love that. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I didn't say that. That was really good, Vala. No, that's what I heard. That's (laughs) what I heard.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, we're definitely saying that. And uh, definitely a huge, huge piece of the shift that we're seeing in the marketplace. You know, and and I think the other piece that's really important is people need to learn in different modalities, right? They don't always, you know, you and I might not might not learn in classroom. Some of us might need to be hands on, some of us might need one on one time. Sometimes having like a good cohort uh, is good because you can bounce ideas off each other. And and I think those, those are really changing the way people learn and, and if you've got systems that don't do that it's it's been very very difficult uh for, for every organization to get there um but hey related to that learning and that shift that you're seeing i mean there's some other things that i know you're very passionate about um i know that you're uh, you advocate a lot of different societal issues that you're 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 focused on at the moment what's hot for you right now
3: well what's hot for me is first of all a lot of it's in this framework of what the world economic forum has described as the as the uh this imperative, the reskilling revolution, and the, the need to, to reskill a billion people by twenty thirty, and we're doing this and contributing in all sorts of ways. working with an amazing group uh, in Africa, led by an extraordinary social entrepreneur called I Am the Code, which is focused on on teaching uh, a million uh, girls and young women to code in the most disadvantaged places on earth, uh, in you know refugee camps in Africa. And so we're, we're we we we're really super committed to that work. Uh, we're working with a customer of ours, a Deco, uh, on an initiative to give Ukrainian refugees the skills they need to be successful in this next chapter of their lives. Uh, I you know I came from uh, the space business as we were talking about, and I got to work with a lot of uh, with the military and and have. Uh, a tremendous, I care a lot about the veterans who serve, mm-hmm. uh, serve our country. Uh, and so, uh, we do a lot of work with veterans through the USO. Uh, just, there's so many opportunities and, and in fact, we have some customers doing some amazing things too. Guy just tell, like, I've got, we've got this one customer that, uh, it's a big retailer. They, their employees are their customers in the communities they operate. And when someone applies for a job, sometimes they don't have the skills to get that job. Hmm. And instead of sending them back into the community with a bitter taste about the, from that experience of not getting the job, because that would be really bad for their business too, uh, they've created a platform so that we can deliver customized learning journeys to the people who don't get jobs so that they can go get the skills and come back and apply again or apply for another job in the community and be, continue as loyal customers, future employees and successful members of the, of the community. And, and so we're seeing also companies do all sorts of interesting things like that that are really exciting and inspiring.
4: That's awesome. Jeff, my last question, uh, my youngest is 12 years old, so middle school. My oldest is entering sophomore year at Bentley University. So about a 10-year difference between my youngest and oldest, and I've got one in the middle. What uh, advice- I
3: went to Bentley. That's great. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> great
4: school. Great school. Uh, I don't like the tuition, but it's great school.
0: <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, the tuition's killing me. Uh, but anyway, that's a whole other show. Uh, what advice would you give my 12-year-old and my 19-year-old in terms of the skills that you think are going to matter most in the next next 10 years? Are there a set of skills yeah. that they need to – and you referenced soft skills in one of your answers, and I think – you know that's an important set of skills that are the hardest to develop and perhaps the most valuable. But are there certain skills you would recommend to my to my kids?
3: Yeah, you know a, a few. First, first of all, uh, for your younger uh, your younger child, I would say learn to code. Yeah, the world is becoming software, right? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so learning learning to code uh, is a great skill. Uh, I'd say the soft skills are super important uh, for uh, both mm-hmm. your. Both, uh, there's a data science, I would say for the older one. And then uh, I'd point out mental health, wellness, like mindfulness, learn to meditate, learn to learn how you know, this world with the social media and everything out there is, and the mental health crisis is real. Uh, I think everyone should learn some basic wellness skills. And I think the sooner we, we teach our children, the better.
4: Jeff, great advice.
0: Indeed. Some great advice here. We're here with Jeff Tarr, CEO of Skillsoft, multi-successful CEO, Bain alumni, and more importantly, uh, a guest now on Disrupt TV. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Have an amazing Friday and hope to hear from you again soon. Thank
3: thanks, you, guys. Jeff. Thank you.
4: Great CEO. Great advice. Uh, amazing. Uh, yeah. Only the best CEOs come on this program, and that's no exception with our next guest, (laughs) Saul Kaplan, is founder and chief catalyst of the Business Innovation Factory and author of the Business Model Innovation Factory: How to Stay Relevant When the World Is Changing. Saul is also the founder of Luna U. Luna U is a personalized well-being platform, empowering women to improve their own and each other's mental maternal maternal health. Saul started BIF in 2005 with a mission to enable business model innovation. BIF makes transformation change safer and easier to manage for institutional leaders by helping them explore, test, commercialize next uh, uh, practices and new business models. Prior to BIF, uh, Saul served as the executive director of the Rhode Island Economic Development Corporation and executive counsel to the governor on economic and community development. Uh, prior to his state leadership, he served as senior strategy partner in Accenture's health and life pr- sciences practice, which is really shaping the Lu- Luna U program. Follow Saul uh, as he shares his innovation musings on Twitter at SCAP5, S-K-A-P-5, and on Medium, his incredible blogs, at SCAP5. Welcome uh, back, Saul, to Disrupt TV.
2: Hey, Vala, always great to be with both you and Ray. I love mixing it up with you guys. Nice new intro to the show, by the way. I like it. Thank you. That's, that's Ray's doing.
4: That's Ray's doing. I know no, we got a good team. So. But, yeah.
0: oh. so, but hey, Saul, welcome back. You know, uh, you're best known for Business Innovation Factory, or Biff. I mean, that amazing community that was TED Talks before TED Talks. Um, but tell us about how you started that community and what you learned from that process. Oh, great, of building Biff. So.
2: Hey, Ray, great, thanks for that uh, question. It's nice to be known for anything. So uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, no, uh, Biff has been my baby uh, and my life's work after a very long career. You know, it, I call it the industrial era portion of my career where I worked, as you know, directly in the industry, had a big claim to fame. I worked for Eli Lilly and Company uh, and I had a little something to do with uh, the way Prozac uh, was brought to the US uh, marketplace. Uh, and then I did a very long stint as a road warrior consultant, as you know, Arthur D. Little, um, I ran my own boutique, and then I got pulled into what was uh, Anderson Consulting uh, and ultimately became Accenture. Uh, and so BIF, uh was, uh, you know, after my fourth midlife crisis, uh, and I was starting the next half of my career, right, where I knew that uh, innovation required a whole new tool set From the science MBA background, working with large enterprises, top down change that always had transformation on the front end, but ended up being incremental uh, to the existing business model. And that was fine during the era I did this. You could win as a share taker, as the CEO. Just do better uh, than whoever is ahead of you, you know, and you can move up the competitive table uh, at operational excellence uh, And I knew we needed in the 21st century a different skill set so Biff was about how do we make Transformation safer and easier to manage and build a community of folks who knew we needed to learn a new set of superpowers so I learned Uh, And we learned together as a community, and you know, because you were part of it, uh, both of you, um, over the years as we convened in our summit, uh, did our work over the course of the year, trying to become more transformational in the context of the 21st century, and we needed three superpowers, human-centered design, how to see the opportunity set, not through the lens of the enterprise, but through the lens of the customer, through the lens of the person whose job it was to be done or problem uh, to solve, easy to say, hard to do. We needed to learn the superpower of what I call rapid prototyping. I grew up in the world where you went through these innovation stage gates, 18 committees, and Mm -hmm. over time, that's why we produced mostly incremental change to the way things work because the stakeholders who held the purse strings and controlled whether your innovation project moved forward were more vested in improving the performance of today's business model than they were in creating an entire new business model to change the value equation. The third superpower uh, is what I call storytelling and engagement. I grew up uh, in traditional top-down marketing and communications. And here we are in this era with social media and platforms and what I call self-organized pers- purposeful networks self-organized, purposeful networks, which are bottom-up ways to change the value equation and not something we were very good at. So over 20 years at BIF, we learned the tools, we built a methodology, we did 70 projects, healthcare, education, and government. uh, And now uh, we were ready to pivot to pick our own design challenges rather than waiting to be hired uh, as a consultant or a designer, uh, and we chose our very first venture to design uh, called LunaU, and I'll stop there, uh, and, uh, and we, can, we can get into healthcare and LunaU uh, as we go. But I learned a lot uh, from the community uh, over the years at Biff, and it's the best asset uh, that I have personally, uh, and I love our network, the way we engage, uh, and the way we help each other to get better faster.
4: Okay, so if you don't mind, Saul, I want to jump into Luna. You, if that's okay with you. Um, Okay, so we just heard 70 projects. You were servicing the largest companies in the world in healthcare to startups, all sorts of incredible in education, healthcare, government space. And then there was an inflection point. At some point, about three years ago or so, you decide, rather than waiting for these institutions to come to you with a challenge, you discovered a challenge, you and your team at Biff. And the challenge was women are more likely to die or suffer serious complications from childbirth in the U.S. than any other high-income nation in the world. So that was shocking to to me, and I'm sure it was shocking to you. So here's some stats. uh, And I'm not sure if any of these stats is why you chose to build Luna U. But 700 women die of pregnancy-related complications in the U.S. every year, 700, 70,000 women suffer from life-threatening complications from childbirth every year. And 700,000, again, I'm going order of magnitude more, women experience serious complications and avoidable suffering from childbirth. So these numbers are stunning. But then if you peel the layers a bit, you find out that black women are three times more likely to die from childbirth than white women. You find that women on Medicaid, are 82%, almost 100% more likely to develop life-threatening complications uh, than women who are privately insured, which is just unbelievable in this country, the richest country in the world with $21 trillion GDP. And lastly, 60% of these childbirth-related complications and deaths can be prevented. Okay. Okay. Is this why Luna, Luna U was born? Because it sounds like one of the biggest crises we have in healthcare is right here at home, certainly in your state of Rhode Island. So tell us about when you found out about these things, what inspired you, motivated you, and frankly, grabbed you by the neck and said, you and Biff need to solve this problem.
2: Uh, I, well, first of all, Luna, I need to take you around uh, everywhere I go. That was uh, a brilliant uh, description of the problem. Uh, it's a sad and, state.
4: It's a sad state.
2: No, it's worse than it's worse than sad when you when you look at these uh, statistics. And we picked it with intention right? We picked this use case to design a new impact venture because it's a highly visible problem. It's on the front page of newspapers, uh, the subject of documentaries. Uh, and the more we peeled the onion and learned about this problem, the more angry we got about how can we live in a country uh, that is the worst performing at maternal health. Uh, with the kind of healthcare system uh, and professional expertise that we have. How can this even be? And when you think about it, it's not hard to understand. Pregnancy is not a disease and yet we assign it to the healthcare system, which was designed mostly to treat us when we were sick, when we have a disease and it's really good at it, right? We can debate, there are instances where we wish it were a lot better, but the truth is it's really quite good uh, at how to diagnose and treat disease. But there are a lot of diseases where it is, the results are almost more dependent on the conditions we live in, right? Our behaviors, our own place in the ecosystem. And we built a healthcare system that beat agency out of the customer, right? Which we did in so many industries. Pregnancy is not a disease, right? The way to change these terrible outcomes is to empower women directly, to strengthen their voice, to help them understand the well-being indicators that lead to really bad outcomes, whether it's morbidity or mortality. So we took everything we built over 17 years at BIF and we said, we're not going to take on any projects that aren't in areas that we want to take the solution. All the way through to commercialization, because we believe the time is right to design business models that are mission based that can solve a real problem we have in our communities and across our society, but to do it with a scalable venture that's investable, that can create a return on investment for a growing number of impact investors that want to invest for return, but they want it to be in the context of solving real problems you know that we have in our communities and i think the time is right to stop talking about it which i've been doing forever and actually doing it and demonstrating that we can do it and so luna U is our first venture and we are gaining a lot of traction uh we're in the seed stage we've uh, we've got over 300 women uh, engaged on the platform uh that 300,
4: 300 women on Luna u how many soul one. have gone through the nine months and beyond yep. how, how so, many so,
2: so 300 women 163 as of this morning that have been all the way through wow. not just giving birth but we go three months postpartum because a lot of bad things can happen right at birth and in that immediate period postpartum so the other reason we picked maternal health is in 12 months we know know whether it worked so now we can actually build real evidence to say that we know that engaging on a platform like luna u you know we've got a dozen engagement measures right can significantly improve the outcomes whether you measure them as mortality morbidity of the mom of the new baby what are the outcomes
4: what are the outcomes of the near 170 that i've gone through
2: yeah. So the outcomes are, in well, first of all, the, the three things we're trying to prove are, one, that social justice can have a business model, that we, these problems at the magnitude that they exist in our society need a scalable business model you know, to be able to rise to the level of the problem. And so we want to close the racial disparity. So we start with underserved populations, BIPOC women, to who have the most risk, to demonstrate that Luna you can change the outcomes. Then we wanna improve two kinds of outcomes, clinical outcomes, which are, we didn't make them up, they're well known, right? You can look at morbidity and mortality measures, uh, whether the woman carried the baby to full term whether they had a low birth weight baby uh, whether they needed whether they had a preeclampsia and eclampsia you know and ended up on an operating table you know where they needed blood transfusions whether the baby needed to go into a nicu you know really really expensive so we've got clinical outcomes and we've got uh economic outcomes as we scale We can start to build the data model and the other thing about Luna U is it's an empowerment model not designed to make the healthcare system work better it's designed to empower the customer so all of the data is her data right in a trusted secure way we're not taking the data and repackaging it and using it for other purposes. We make her a stronger actor with her doctor, with her midwife, and we make it easy for her to share it in the system You know, to start to take some of the pressure off and some of the reasons why stress levels go up during pregnancy uh, and create these bad outcomes. So we're be- beginning to show really high uh, satisfaction scores, and now we're collecting the actual data that will allow us to evaluate the causal relationship as we scale. So we're really excited about that. We're doing it in the prototype phase in partnership with a Medicaid insurance company, Neighborhood Health Plan here in Rhode Island. They're the Uh, largest- Oh,
4: Neighborhood Health. So that's the largest insurance provider in the state.
2: They are the biggest player Uh, in the the Medicaid marketplace. And so they're a real influencer. They share our mission because they know that we need to do better. And they know that the existing system, well-intended, trying many point solutions, but hasn't been able to, to get the system impact that we want and need. So came in and helped us fund the prototype and so now we're off to the races and I'm starting to shape demand across the country, looking for new program partners. The, we just launched our seed round uh, and uh, I've shared with you uh, and Ray uh, before this, we're getting a lot of traction. You know, We've raised $850,000 already in the seed round and we're well on the way you know, to having the resources necessary to build the evidence base which will put us in position you know for an a round of financing which will put us in position to go all the way to the size this venture really wants to be there are 3.7 million live births in wow. america uh, and so it's a pretty nice, addressable market with a very significant unmet need. Uh, and so we're really excited uh, at the early stage of where we're going uh, with this. And we believe that this approach is not only applicable in maternal health, but there are many diseases and care paths where we already know the role of the patient themselves, the consumer, plays a really critical role in influencing the outcomes. We've got to do better at how to engage them and empower them to be stronger actors if we want to improve our performance uh, in our healthcare system.
0: Hey, Saul, let me ask you a real quick question. This is healthcare, right? And you're right. I mean, it really comes down to the patient, the individuals there. Um, And and part of it is healthcare is hard, right? So what behavioral changes are needed, support networks that are often unidentified or ignored, other factors like that um, that you see are applicable in other um, areas um, as well?
2: Well, let's, uh, I'll stick with healthcare for a second, and then uh, we can talk about other areas, but well, clearly maternal health. I mean, other, other,
0: there's other disease states and other, you know, areas yeah. where people find that opportunity.
2: We know that the healthcare system is trying hard to reach out beyond treating the disease as, as uh, when, when people are sick to do a lot of the preventative work to inter and engage patients earlier, and and they're trying really hard, but they're all programs that get designed that are pushed from the enterprise out, Mm -hmm. right, from the healthcare system out. One of the problems is we have to earn the trust of, of the customer, of patients if we want them to share their lived experience, honestly and share their story and make their data available they we have a huge hurdle to get over for them to trust our solutions our solution doesn't come to them through the healthcare system it comes to them directly and we're working to build the trust that same exact phenomena is true we could talk about transforming almost every any industry i like to talk about education is another classic mm-hmm. example of a top-down, right? Like not in yep. building a model that's for the student experience. We could talk about almost any public service, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, a a government out, you know, down to the community as opposed to self organizing the people that have the problem in the first place and empower them to be stronger actors in shaping solutions that they believe in, they tell their friends in. So, mostly this is about getting back to how do we put personal agency back into our systems after just living through an error where with intention we took personal agency out. That's the problem we have to solve for. Digital can help us do it, but we've got a lot of learning to do and we've got to start architecting platforms and technologies for this purpose, not just to help existing enterprises improve the efficiency of their performance.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. My final question, I'm going to put you on the spot. Saul. in preparation for this interview, I was doing some research. And I found out one of the mothers named her child Luna Yu. So oh, did that it. did did that bring a tear? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> we, this happened to us recently, where uh,
2: we get inno- We get like you know, the, the, this market is so starved for someone to actually care and pay attention and listen to a woman share her pregnancy experience hmm. in an honest way, and that's what we do. And so women every day tell us they tell our well-being coaches right? They will say, no one has asked me. Nobody cared enough to do
4: it. And you're absolutely right.
2: We had a woman recently who was so excited about the community that we were building and the support she was getting that she literally named her new baby Luna. Uh, And it just, (laughs) uh, I'm telling you, it brought tears to my eyes. Uh, And uh, I thank you for asking me that. That's awesome.
0: So we could definitely go for hours, but you taught us to keep within 17 minutes. It's Saul Kaplan, founder and chief catalyst at Business Innovation Factory. And of course, the founder and CEO of Luna U will definitely be following you. You can follow him, follow Saul on Twitter at scap 5 and of course, follow him on Medium, as Vala mentioned. So thanks, hey, thanks guys. a lot for being here.
4: Thank you, cool. Saul. You're welcome. Thank you. Important work that his team is doing. Important work. It, okay, this is our cleanup hitter spot where we bring a you know a big brain and they hit a grand slam, and there's no doubt that we're going to experience that right now. Turaj Parang, author of Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame. Turaj is a veteran Silicon Valley dealmaker. As a seasoned entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and M&A, M&A expert, Turaj has sat in almost every seat around a table in Silicon Valley since late 1990s. Turaj's book, Exit Path, draws on his decades-long unique experience Involved, involving hundreds of M and A transactions, strategic partnerships, venture capital investments totaling billions of dollars in aggregate value. He's currently the chief operating officer at Serve Robotics, which he helped spin out of Uber, and an operating advisor of Pear VC, a leading early stage venture capital firm. You can follow uh, Touraj on Twitter at Touraj T O U R A G. He must have been an early adopter. I couldn't get Vala. <laughs> I couldn't get Bala. That's amazing. All right. Welcome to Arash to the Shark TV.
1: Uh, it's great to be here. And also, it helps to have a very unusual name. Uh, thank you so much. And by the way, what an inspiring two speakers you just had. Uh, I see a common theme there, which is restoring agency and empowerment. And this book mm-hmm. is also about that. So I'd uh, love to talk to you about it.
0: Yeah, that. this is amazing, right? And, and you know, thrumming through some of the summaries and part of the book, right? Um, one of the things that caught my eye was also your comment about success right? We define success the wrong way for startups. Let's talk about how we traditionally have identified success and more importantly, what we really should be thinking about for success. I'll turn it over to you, Taraj. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think Jeff's uh, words really resonated. He mentioned that, uh, you know, how uh, employees are looking for impact and looking for purpose and, and how they're connecting with a mission of the companies they're joining with. And, you know, uh, Entrepreneurs are sort of from the outside viewed as people who are looking for uh, financial success, right? Financial metrics, building great valuations, etc. But really, when it comes down to having been in this uh, kind of serial entrepreneur seat myself, started multiple companies. It really never was about the money and it was a lot about the mission. In fact, I've joined startups because of their mission. I have started companies because of the mission. So that kind of mission orientation Mm -hmm. is first and primary in the minds of Pretty much every startup entrepreneur, we we all know that the odds are so tilted against Mm -hmm. us, right? Most startups don't survive beyond five years. In fact, venture-backed startups are even worse. Uh, 70% of them (laughs) don't even return the money that was invested in them. So the odds are pretty grim. But the reason we do it is that we are connecting with that mission. And, and that's one thing that I encourage in the book is to kind of reconnect with that, because a lot of times when we are doing uh, the startup world and we are just uh, putting one fire after another, the urgent seems to push out what's important. And, and so um, kind of it, it really helps to kind of step back and, and remember what was the mission and what was the purpose we started the startup for.
4: You had some incredible endorsements of your book. Um, Adam Gramp said it's the best book for startup founders he's ever read. Uh, so congratulations on the book. Uh, can you tell, talk to us about maybe firsthand experiences you've had that perhaps in a hard way taught you the importance of exit plans and yes. how to prepare.
1: Yes, uh, failure can be a great uh, teacher, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and I, I, as, a, as a new entrepreneur, first-time entrepreneur, I had an excellent teacher. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so what happened was back in 2005, um, and that was my first startup, Jackster, And we had this idea of connecting the world of mobile phones with social networks. And at the time, mobile phones were not the smart uh, app uh, enriched environments. They were these dumb feature phones, as you may recall, and they didn't have any apps on them. Uh, But people love to speak on their phones and started texting, although it cost him an arm and a leg to even send a, one text message or make any long distance calls. Because Students would go broke making calls. So we figured, you know, hey, if we transferred these uh, voice and text packets over the IP network, we could bypass the toll charges of these telephony networks, right? So that was our aha moment. And we weren't alone. There were actually three, four other startups doing the same thing. So we were kind of bringing the Skype experience that was on desktop computers and laptops to the mobile phones, again, uh, not smartphones. Uh, and, and this idea really took off. So we, we were victim our own, uh, of our own early success in a way. We grew very rapidly. We went from zero to 10 million users uh, after launching in one year. Uh, We had VCs basically chasing us down the street. We had all the top tier VCs uh, kind of investing (laughs) in us. They they were on our wish list. We we were just riding high. We won awards. um, And in our uh, sort of uh, naive first time entrepreneur perception, uh, we decided that, look, we are going for gold. We are building a unicorn, although the term didn't exist back then, we're building a billion dollar (laughs) company um, and uh, we were gonna go for the IPO. And we don't need to build relationships with strategic partners or with potential acquirers. Who needs that? That's a waste of time. Let's focus on our viral growth and, and just double down, pour fuel on uh, the fire, and, and just keep going. Lo and behold, a little thing that we didn't know was the market, which tends to turn on you uh, unbeknownst. Pr- A lot of times at the worst times, so we hit the 2008-2009 recession and, oops, um, uh, there was no more venture money to be had. Uh, It's not unlike the environment today, right? Uh, I've seen this play out a few times, so in 99-2000 timeframe. So we uh, scrambled to try to figure out what to do. We had less than a year runway. In fact, when we looked at the numbers and talked to our board, we had only six months of runway. So panic set in, uh, and said, okay, no problem. We'll just find an acquirer. Uh, it was too late. Uh, I (laughs) learned that to really find a strategic acquirer who properly values your startup, it's a multi-year process. It's not just, uh, you know, you got a date for a couple of years, you know, (laughs) you got a date, you got a, you got got to put in the time. Absolutely. So, um, That key strategic decision we made, which was not to focus on these partnerships, really came back to haunt us and ended up having to sell that startup for pennies on the dollar. Mm -hmm. If even that, we sold Mm -hmm. it to another private company who just basically dictated the terms because we had no other option. We'd have to shut down as an alternative. So worst place to be, I took the next six months to (laughs) lick my wounds, (laughs) reflect on what had happened. And what I realized was, uh, you know, that decision was not a very smart decision. Uh, so with my next startup, I tried not to make the same mistake again. So the first thing I did was gather all the uh, leadership team, go to an offsite, even though we could hardly afford it. But I said, let's let's just go away. Let's go away for a weekend. Yep. Really reflect on where do we want to be when we grow up. What does success really look like for us? And yep where we realized that probably a part of that success uh, was being acquired by a very good strategic uh, partner. And then Mm -hmm. we made a wish list of who those partners were and Mm -hmm. thought about how do we rank them? How, How do we prioritize them? What are our hypotheses about why they're attractive and why we are attractive to them? And then that just offsite and having that mindset and having that clarity oh, set I mean. in motion a course of events over the next two years, that kind of grew that company from like 10, $20 million valuation to over $100 million. And we sold it to Vistaprint in a, in a very uh, uh, very nice auction process where we had multiple uh, acquirers bidding on us. And that, that was all beautiful. happened due to that, uh, to that realization. And I've seen this um, kind of mindset and this kind of approach help many other entrepreneurs and i've also seen sadly on the other side many others who have approached me and asking me hey how do i sell my startup and i asked them, how much runway do too you late. have and it's too late yeah. yes yeah.
0: sadly too late you know, Taraj, that's a very good point. I mean, we've seen this happen in all the cycles. You've been through everything, starting from Wilson all the way to all these different startups to where you are today. I mean, these are some amazing kind of stories all gathered together. I mean, if you're a startup leader and you're not reading this book, I mean, you're definitely missing out. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was really the question about mercenaries versus missionaries. If you got an exit plan, are you a mercenary or you're a missionary? And, and I think that's a very important piece because people back there with some ideal Views of what a startup is supposed to do might be wondering. So back to you. Absolutely, great question. And uh, this is actually something
1: that underlines a bigger phenomenon that uh, I call the exit taboo. In fact, talking about <laughs> exit strategies with investors tends to be a cringy subject. You know, a lot of times yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it's actually a no-no to put your exit strategy in your pitch deck to an investor. And even raising it with your board members, with your leadership, with your employees, kind of gives people the, kind of a strange. Vibe. Yeah, it's kind of taboo in the valley to do that. <laughs> it, it it really it, there aren't that many subjects that are taboo. Exit seems to be the, <laughs> to have yeah, the valley. Anything thing goes except for exit strategy. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, right? So um, so when I when I peeked behind the scenes, I realized that there is this co- core concept of a missionary versus mercenary. Of course, no venture capital investor. Me included, would ever want to uh, fund a mercenary uh, entrepreneur because, you know, tr- granted, given this those grim statistics, you ne- really need to have a lot of conviction in what you're doing. You really need to believe in what you're doing and stick through the thick and thin and not bail uh, as soon as, uh, you know, storm clouds gather, so to speak. Uh, so you need a captain at the helm. And so that's why people worry that if someone talks about their exits, um, they are not connected to that mission in the right way. And they're just in it for a quick quick buck, built to flip rather than built to last, right? But we all know Mm. that ultimately all investors and all founders only financially gain when these startups either IPO or, or sell to an acquirer. In fact, there are 30 acquisitions for every IPO every year. So the most likely success path is selling to an acquirer. So we all know that. In fact, to best execute on your mission, that would be the success path because Mm. 30 out of (laughs) uh, 31, chances are that you are going to be sold to an acquirer. So you might as well find the right acquirer that is aligned with you
0: in the mission. Sorry, did we get cut out? Yeah. No, no, we definitely want to no, talk quiet. about it early now, align with the mission and get it over with instead of like wait till the end when it's too late. I mean, you're, you're definitely late. right about that. Yeah, uh,
1: absolutely. And, and you know what? Um, uh, our future is built on these startups, right? Uh, the industries yeah. won't disrupt themselves. <laughs> I'm yeah. preaching to the choir. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so whenever any one startup fails to succeed, we all lose. I I am a cheerleader for startups and for entrepreneurs. I have two daughters. I want them to have a better future. I wrote this book so that maybe we can tilt the odds of success just slightly towards uh, these entrepreneurs, and thereby we all
4: win. I love that. My company invests in startups on a cadence of once a week. I think we are the most active corporate venture capital, Salesforce Ventures, uh, behind maybe Google Ventures. Uh, but uh, so I, I, I'm a, a huge uh, ch- a champion and, and advocate for startups. What, when do you know to sell your startup? Like when you're advising okay. startup founders, what's your checklist or how do you guide these startup founders when, when it's the right time for them to consider being acquired?
1: Yes, uh, that's a great question. And, uh, yeah, and that's very different from when, when do you prepare to sell your startup? The preparation should start today regardless of the size or uh, stage of your startup because of all the reasons we just talked about. Um, uh, but deciding when to sell ultimately comes down to three basic things. One is, are you uh, uh, ready to sell? <laughs> do you have the willingness to sell? Do you have willing buyers out there? Two And thirdly, are there a set of terms that you can all mutually agree on? Mm. Getting to that stage, making sure these three things converge takes a lot of preparation. That's what I call a long game in my book, uh, because it takes many years to cultivate, bring along your key stakeholders on the journey to build the capabilities, build up the leverage so that when you are actually in those negotiations, you have leverage, you can get get the best terms possible. And um, also cultivate those relationships with acquirers so that you are in their mindset. Even if someone is interested in buying you today, it doesn't mean they would be interested in six months and vice versa. So you want to be on their radar. You want to have those relationships touch points, preferably multiple touch points within each large organization. As you know, reorgs happen quite often. People move jobs, move between companies. So so you don't want to have one single point of failure. You want to have multiple Touch points, you want to build the relationship. So it's not just enough to have a LinkedIn connection. You want to have a cadence of interaction. And all those things take time. And uh, I think you kind of see, you, you, you know it when you're ready. And uh, I, of course, in the book, I, I set out the criteria for why people consider selling and what are the risks to selling. Starting a sale process is not without its downsides. Um, and you have to kind of weigh those against each other. I have found a lot of entrepreneurs are really ready to sell right before they're raising a new round. And, mm-hmm. and that because um, <laughs> raising is. a new round, uh, incur- you incur dilution, yeah. it pushes out the exit event by many years. And good savvy acquirers mm-hmm. know that. So in fact, that could be a great signal and a great subtle way to get those acquirers over the hump a little bit. And I talk about uh, ways to approach acquirers. a process I call inception, borrowing from that movie, uh, <laughs> in the book.
4: That's awesome.
0: That's yeah, it's a great point. Actually, you know, one, one of your things regarding to M&A that I thought was important is like knowing when to walk away from a deal, right? And when to say no, just like mm-hmm. in all things in life, right? Half the battle is knowing when to buy, the other battle is knowing when to sell. And of course, everyone never tells you about when to walk away, right? So give us some quick tips on when to walk away when when you think it's, it's just the wrong set of conditions. Yes, absolutely. The best, uh, the
1: best uh, way to walk away is, of course, when you have viable options, and and uh, mm. you have to cultivate cultivate those viable options. Mm. Uh, in my uh, uh, second startup that had the successful exit, our best viable option was that we were cash flow positive. So if you can yes. get to that stage, yes. you are in an amazing leverage position. So that's one. The other one, of course, is you. Ha- if you have other alternative buyers, like mm. other folks who are willing to buy you. You can always walk away or you have people who are willing to invest in your startup. So um, you have to basically have realistic alternative options. I think the worst time to walk away is when you don't. Hmm.
4: What was the reason you wrote the book? Uh, What was the what was the inflection point? What was the was there one or or, or just friends and and colleagues saying you have wealth of knowledge. You need to write this down.
1: It really was uh, was a cumulative uh, thing over the years where I started seeing this pattern that Mm. a lot of entrepreneurs were pinging me a lot of times when it was sadly too late. And I was giving them the same advice over and over again. Oh. So you know, I was like, okay, maybe maybe I should write a book and just point them to the book. So laziness perhaps was part of it, uh, but the other part was that I there's truly- nothing
4: lazy about writing a book. I can I, assure
1: I, I you that. The hard yeah. Part.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is no laziness in that. Yeah. I agree. <laughs>
1: yes, you all know it well. Um, but the other one really was my desire to give back to the community because I feel like having sat in every seat around the table gives me a very unique vantage point and i wanted to share that with the entrepreneurs out there
4: that's you're going to create multiple multi-millionaires and maybe perhaps even billionaires because of your book so congratulations and thank you for writing the book that's that's amazing
0: yeah this is the book to read we're with taraj prang author of Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame. You can follow him at Taraj. More importantly, you can pick up his book. It came out July 22nd. And of course, pick up where books are sold, including Amazon and uh, the number one new release in consolidation and mergers on Amazon. So hey, How nice is
4: it to walk into a bookstore and see your book on the table?
0: I, it, oh, that's gosh, gotta,
4: that's that? gotta be. That's it's gotta surreal. be.
1: It's <laughs> surreal. Yes.
4: <laughs> it's awesome. Congratulations. We'll you awesome. When you did so. I saw it in his Twitter feed. It's, it's sitting on the awesome table, yeah. and it's a rack of books. I'm like, wow, that is just that's gotta put a smile on your face for the entire day.
1: It will <laughs> it. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank, you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank okay. you. Thank Very much.
0: Cool. Happy Friday. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you. Wow.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jeff, Saul, Taraj, I mean, like, yeah, you know, these are folks that expand your mind. And uh, okay, this is my favorite part of the show. Ray, please summarize the big takeaways from our three guests. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Individual empowerment, uh, right? Uh Agency, I think as Taraj was putting it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Jeff was talking about how we can actually each help ourselves, help our Doesn't employees.
4: Doesn't he look like he's having fun? Like when he was answering, like Jeff was like giddy talking about his company. I mean, that's when you know CEO is having fun. Anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah. my
0: God, I, I had the pleasure of giving a keynote at his event and you could just feel the energy from him. He, he mm-hmm. This is something he loves. You can feel the passion. All three guests have a lot of passion in terms of what they're trying to do. But I, I think really it's, uh, we're, we're at a point where people want the skills, they want the capabilities to be able to succeed on their own. We're seeing that skills competency-based approach is really what's driving our future jobs, right? We've mm-hmm. got to keep continuing to improve ourselves. And some companies are taking the lead in helping us learn that and provide those skills and abilities uh, for you to actually learn on your own and, and creating an incentive and learning environment that's there. Uh, what Saul was talking about was similar. That's with personal health, right? Our ability to take, you know, Uh, behavioral changes in healthcare, provide the uh, environment and infrastructure for, you know, people to succeed, especially for mothers and especially for BIPOC mothers uh, to be able to have that opportunity and then to take those learnings and apply it to other healthcare. I think it's going to be really, really powerful. Uh, And then of course, right. I mean, you know, we just talked about what startup founders, I mean, can you imagine being a startup founder? It's crazy, right? I mean, everything's going so fast. You're getting advice from a million different people. And here comes this book that says, here's what you need to do. Get an exit path before you even Start, right think about what that plan is work to it and then take it to the next level and, and I think what we've got on this episode is some really good advice for people who want to improve themselves. So it's it's uh, it's incredible.
4: Saul's young company already has customers who named their children after Luna Yu. Has there been has there been a client of yours where their children were named Constellation? I'm just wondering.
0: No, not that I know. Of. <laughs> so me know. that is that's the
4: ultimate Net Promoter Score uh, when when you name a child after a company you do business with. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Next week is episode 290. 290 Ray, we're inching yeah. our way to. Uh, 900 interviews. We have Michael Duffy, Vice President of Products at Electric Power Systems, and we have Anshu Narula, Vice President of Digital Technologies at Rivian, and a surprise third guest, which we'll announce by midweek next week. We're waiting for I know, confirmation.
0: I'm that surprise third guest. I <laughs> We're waiting for out.
4: confirmation before we chat. <laughs> so we thank you say so, anything. thank you so much for watching, and uh, we'll see you next uh, next Friday. Thank you, everyone.
0: Bye, everybody you wow.